Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with a two for one today with my guest, Debbie Dutton, president of the UNH Foundation and vice president for university advancement, also an aspiring genealogist and fellow RV enthusiast, Troy Finn, who is the associate vice president for development at the University of New Hampshire. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. I am just going to go out on a limb and say that every advancement leader that is listening should look at Debbie's um, webpage at UNH and include some hobbies and a job description. It is a really nice touch. Troy, I was kind of disappointed that you didn't have the equivalent. So let's make this be a catalyst to get there. But just so everybody knows, Debbie likes genealogy, history, hiking, enjoying the ocean and spending time with family and friends. Nice touch. Whose idea was that, Debbie? Uh, I want to say that some smart person in my office said I needed to do that so that I could be more relatable to people. I'm sold. I don't know if you're relatable at all, but I'm, <laughs> I'm convinced you are now. I feel like uh, that was a good move. What is one thing we should all know about genealogy that we probably don't? Uh, it's really easy. So there is absolutely no excuse not to be able to do it now. Thanks to our technology, the web, it is just super easy and fun. It's like, it's like prospect research meets yeah, on yourself, you know, your family. Got yes, it. Exactly. Exactly. Well, I'm looking forward to hosting uh, both of you. And as a point of reference, many of you know that I spent 10 months um, traveling the country with my three boys and my wife during the pandemic in 2020 and early 2021. And along the way, reconnected with Troy, who shared with me that his aunt used to take him on the road in Winnebago uh, and that he was one of 10 siblings. But I cannot recall if his aunt took all 10 siblings in the Winnebago at once. So can you just re refresh my memory, Troy? No, Brent, that was a, that was more one-on-one -on -one time. I think a few of my siblings tried to, to do it, but they were kind of at that point in their lives where like, you know, my sisters wanted to spend like a lot of time, like with a hairdryer doing their hair or my brothers, I don't know, were just into other things when, um, and uh, so they, they didn't really tag along. So it was really just a one-on-one. -on -one. We would go all over in, in her Winnebago warrior. So you were her favorite uh, niece yeah, and nephew. I was the navigator. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, we are going to cover a lot of ground in a short amount of time today. I look forward to getting to know both of you better and uh, potentially for you to get to know each other a little bit better. One of my favorite uh, questions to ask our guests has been to just understand um, our own paths into higher education, which oftentimes will shape uh, at some point, our trajectory. And, uh, and so I want to start with you, Debbie. Uh, tell me about junior year of high school, Debbie. Who was she? What was she into? And what led her to the University of Maine? Yeah, so good question. Um, I was an athlete who sort of did my homework, um, but always wanted to go to UMaine. So that was an easy fit. My mom, my brother, my uncle, lots of folks that I knew went there. And when I got to UMaine, um, I was uh, in a sorority, and by my senior year, I was the president of my sorority, and it was 1989, 88 and 89, 
when fraternities and sororities really needed to do a lot of work to have a positive image, but to do positive in the community. And so that's really how I got hooked on working with nonprofits. We adopted a homeless women's shelter in Bangor, Maine, and we would do fundraising to, to be able to support um, that cause. And it really just um, stuck, stuck with me and, and um, I, never, I never left, I guess. So tell me about that experience and like what was literally the process to raise money at that time for that cause? Oh God. I think we sold like food at the football games and um, you know, maybe did a raffle. So really, really basic stuff. And, you know, it was probably a couple hundred dollars that we donated um, to the, to the women's shelter, but we all felt really great about our efforts. And it was an opportunity for all of us to do something together and be visible and be seen on campus and, and set a good example. And how did that shape your immediate kind of post-college career path? What was the, the first role coming out of school? Um, I was, so my mom was a teacher. She was a fourth grade teacher for, I don't know, 65 years. I'm making that up, but a really long time. And so I became a teacher and I loved it. Um, but I really wanted to continue to use um, more of my, I was a journalism major and I wanted to use writing skills and communication skills. And so I landed a job at the National Multiple Sclerosis Society in Portland, Maine. And it allowed me to do event planning, project management, marketing, communications. I mean, you did it all, right? And you were raising money for a really worthy cause. And it had just always been in my heart since um, that opportunity to volunteer at, at UMaine. And so when I, when I did that, I just was like, wow, this is awesome. I get to work with amazing people in the community who are by their own right, successful, committed, want to see um, better come from their efforts. And I get to work with them to really do better for other people. And it just felt great. And I stuck with it. Love it. Troy, spotlight on you. Uh, junior year of high school. Who was that guy? Where was he? What led him to Holy Cross? in Worcester. So, so Brent, I, I had an unusual path to Holy Cross in that I, at that point in my life, um, was actually interested in becoming a priest. And so I went to Holy Cross, but lived in a seminary the, all the years that I was there and uh, studied philosophy and theology and worked on a capital campaign um, for, uh, for the diocese. And then, then decided uh, in my senior year that that was not going to be my my path and uh, didn't really know what to do with a degree in philosophy and didn't think that um, having worked on a campaign was really a marketable skill, but turned out to be, I ended up transitioning over to, to uh, looking at a job at Dana-Farber to become a major gift assistant for the famous Ellie Starr. Uh, but while I was interviewing, they decided I would be a better financial analyst working in operations. And so I went down that path. And then just grew with Dana-Farber over the years. We started, I think there were 30 of us when I started and over 200 of us in the development shop by the time I left years later. So that's, uh, that's my sort of um, swerving path into, into fundraising. And, uh, but it all started back, back then in, uh, yeah, in high school. We are breaking ground with an almost priest and a former teacher. And uh, it's, uh, you know, it, it's great to, to have that context for, um, what, what led you down the path. But in both cases, it sounds like getting exposure to philanthropy through um, your undergraduate experiences was really important. And I think, frankly, as we think about, you know, talent pipeline and future of the sector, 
so many of our guests had that experience. For many of our you know, current advancement leaders, they started as phonathon callers, or they were in Greek life, or they did um, you know, get looped into some sort of senior class campaign. And it's almost um, accidental all the time. And so one of the big questions that we think about is just what are, what are the steps we can take to um, create more exposure to the profession of um, philanthropy uh, more proactively with with our student populations and uh, and and so that it's maybe not as um, circuitous. Now that being said, I, I will ask Dana Farber, uh, incredibly uh, respected organization, the Jimmy Fund, as well known of a uh, nonprofit brand, um, you know, out there. I'm curious when you think about that period, Troy, what some of your favorite memories are, um, whether it was impact stories or just stellar events that you got to be a part of. I mean, what was, what were some of the highlights? Yeah, good question, Brett. I mean, it, my, my brother had been, had been treated there. And so I, I felt a sort of really personal debt of gratitude to, to Dana Farber for everything they did for my family and, and, uh, and for him. And, and so that was, um, it was a very personal thing to be there and, and to, to do the work we did. And, and then to be part of, of a machine that was being built a, a really aspirational, you know, I mean, we were raising what 30 million a year, and then we were launching a billion dollar campaign first hospital in New England to do that. I mean, that was, it was kind of, you know, once in a lifetime sort of opportunity. And I've had a few of those in my career um, that, that uh, have just been really unique and special. So really no one specific thing, but more of just being part of uh, something uh, so, so big and, and that had so much impact. And, um, uh, and that was really personal uh, to me. Love it. And Debbie, as you think about the path into philanthropy, but then ultimately pivoting to higher education, am I correct in that Colby was your, your primary um, higher education sort of starting point? Yeah, I, I, I was a gift officer at Bates um, before I went to Justin Diabetes Center. But yeah, the longest tenure in the management role was at Colby. And uh, it was hard to leave um, academic medicine. So, you know, like Troy, I was in Boston. I was working for some of the Harvard teaching hospitals. Enormously powerful mission. And um, while Dana-Farber was certainly at the pinnacle of what we all um, aspired to being a part of that kind of groundbreaking research and clinical care really made a tremendous impact on me. So it was really hard to leave academic medicine, um, but I did, and I and I loved my time at Colby. Um, the the change to UNH was a really personal one, and that was about public higher education. So I am a product of public higher education, having gone to the University of Maine. I really believe in public higher education, and what I saw at Colby, and now have experienced with a child in college is how incredibly expensive an education like Colby or some of the other private schools is. And it's a wonderful education, but there are many families that that's out of reach for. And to be able to work at a place like UNH where we make an excellent education affordable and accessible is just incredibly rewarding. And I feel like you know much of who I am today is because I was able to go to the University of Maine. My parents didn't have a lot of money. I received aid. And it's really important for me to be able to continue that legacy and to be able to open it um, and have a role in opening it to other students and families. I love that. And we're going to uh, come back to what you're working on, what you're excited about, really the growth story that has been UNH um, in the context of public higher education, for sure. Um, Troy, I want to ask, 
our paths um, first crossed, I think, as you were uh, wrapping up at what was then the Harvard School of Public Health, right before you went to the Development Guild. And uh, you did have the opportunity, I believe, to be a part of a pretty transformational naming um, experience, which not a lot of um, folks, uh, you know, get get the opportunity to be a part of. So I'd love your your perspective on that. But then also um, just a window into your world at the Development Guild, which is a pretty unique model and a neat way to kind of get exposure to a variety of organizations. Um, and then ultimately, what led you to UNH? Sure. So, so at uh, Harvard School of Public Health, Brent, you're right. When we went there, um, you know, we were launching the public phase of that campaign and and uh, I think we were one of the early schools at Harvard to, to launch. And so our, our, our goal that we were given was, was um, not quite as ambitious as what we had hoped uh, the university would allow us to, to have. Um, and um, so we, we, were, we were confident in it, but we thought, gosh, what, what, what's gonna happen if we, if we hit goal early? You know, what's gonna that, what will that do to our momentum? And then of course, um, when Gerald Chan's gift came forward, that that blew the goal out of the water and uh, first school at Harvard to be named uh, after a benefactor. And um, and that was just a, an incredible moment to be a part of that. You know, the, the graduates of the School of Public Health are, you know, um, uh, are, make some of the most impact I think in the world of, of all the graduates of all the schools of Harvard and uh, being a part of that mission was incredible. Also being there while that that was named, and then uh, also helping to secure um, um, some some really special funding for metabolomics, which was where uh, an area that I worked in there as well. Um, that was that was just a great experience. But you know, um, when when you when you've exceeded your campaign goal so early in a campaign, and there's not really an opportunity to raise the goal, it does sort of um, prevent that momentum from from being able to continue. So I think several of us uh, at that time had uh, transitioned on from from uh, HSPH, and and I I went on to Development Guild. I had actually hired Development Guild to help me build out the team at at uh, the School of Public Health, and um, it was a natural transition to go over and work with Bill and Susie Weber, with Victoria Jones, uh, who I worked with there. And so many great colleagues. Um, worked with a lot of different organizations over those years, um, large and small, all sorts of different flavors. Um, worked in, you know, both on the campaign planning side, um, from feasibility studies all the way up through um, launches of campaign reorgs, did in-house counsel, um, but also worked on the search side uh, as well, which was kind of the unique model of Development Guild in, in, in having both verticals that they, they worked through. But um, Debbie Dutton, you know, uh, obviously, you know, she knew the, the folks at Development Guild and Debbie's name would always come up whenever we were doing a search. They'd be like, what if, do you think Debbie Dutton could be a good candidate for this search? And everyone's like, well, Debbie's really happy at, at UNH, you know, and she's doing such a great job. So I would always hear Debbie's name. She was like this legend. And Debbie, Debbie's and my path had crossed years earlier when she was at Colby um, as well. And so um, at any rate, I, I, um, bought a house up in Durham, not because it was Durham, but just because it was a beautiful place on just the right spot of land, exactly where, where uh, we wanted to be. And I remember reaching out to Debbie and saying, hey, I think I live down the street from your office. And she was like, you're going to commute to Boston? And I said, well, yeah, like, you know, it's, isn't it like an hour and a half? And she was like, well, yeah, if you, if you hit it right, like if you leave at 4 a.m., so I quickly learned that she was right. And, and it was a, that was a bear of a commute. It was a long, like it could be two, two and a half hours each way on, 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 on the wrong days. And I remember calling Debbie eventually and saying, you were so right. Oh my gosh. You know, this is, this is really a quality of life thing, you know, and 
it just so happened that Debbie had uh, an opportunity that had opened up right around that time. And so we started talking about, about what that could look like. And, um, and then I joined Debbie's team. Uh, that's about five years ago next month. Uh, and, uh, and, and it's been wonderful. It's been a great, great time to come on board into a public, uh, public university. I had only consulted in public higher ed. I hadn't worked in public higher ed before. And Debbie's story, which she just told you why she's here, um, was really inspiring to me and to want to come on board. I'd had some nephews who had come to UNH, played football, had a great experience here. And, and so I had a lot of respect for the institution, but seeing what Debbie had done in, in, at that time, I think it had been about five years, Debbie, that you had been here mm-hmm. and, um, and, and how she had really transformed the advancement shop and, and all the great work that they were doing coming uh, off of a very successful campaign really attracted me to it. And I saw it much as, as a similar opportunity to where I was uh, uh, earlier at, at Dana-Farber, really coming into a place that was just getting lift off and being yeah. able to be a part of that has been extraordinary. Well, I have heard of the tried and true major gift tactic of, hey, I'm going to be in Durham. Would you have an opportunity to get together? I've never heard the, hey, I bought a house in Durham <laughs> as a way of getting a job. That was thinly veiled, but well done. I almost, I almost bought it for a minute there. Debbie, how about you? I am just grateful every day that it, whatever it was, Brent, thinly veiled, open assault, whatever. I am grateful every day that I have Troy on my team. I love that. Um, Troy, can I ask, as it relates to the Chan gift, you, you touched on it for a minute. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, it was a $350 million gift. And uh, Harvard loves name and buildings, but name and schools was, you know, is a new thing. Um, without sharing anything you're not comfortable or shouldn't share, like how how complicated was that aspect of a gift? I mean, you know, sort of um, oftentimes think about the, the pricing strategy of gifts, if you will, and what are the levers of value that matter to a donor um, and the negotiation associated with it. So again, without getting into the, the, the specifics, just how big of a deal was that in that case? Yeah, I, I mean, I think no one, I, I think no one really saw it coming. I think, you know, the School of Public Health is one of the uh, less wealthy schools of, of Harvard, of course. And um, I, I remember our our dean, uh, Julia Frank, used to say, you know, this is probably one of the only parts of Harvard where your net worth decreases upon graduation. And, you know, you're going to go out in the field and, and go save the world, but you're not going to make a lot of money doing it. So, you know, it was it was hard. Fundraising at School of Public Health was hard, you know, Um and and uh, I think I think Gerald was inspired by a gift that um, that we brought forward um, from from a family. It turned out to be a it was about a twenty five million dollar gift to create the Center for Metabolomics. And at the time, I, th- I think that would have been the largest gift in the history of the School of Public Health. Um, and as we were getting ready to announce that gift and and uh, and really celebrate it, that's I think when Gerald came forward um, uh, to to announce his and. And, uh, and then in terms of working through the mechanics of it, you know, um, I think the university was so thrilled uh, that, that the School of Public Health of all places would be the first uh, to be able to be named with a gift like this. It, it touched off, as, as I'm sure you know, a whole series of gifts that then occurred at, the, at that level or higher uh, that, were, that were able to lead to other naming opportunities um, that were transformational. But for Gerald, um, you know, if, if you know Gerald, he's, he's probably one of the most humble, uh, brilliant people you'd meet. Um, 
And he was such a well-known university citizen. I think, you know, the university felt really comfortable uh, with his philanthropy because he was so well-known and um, it was so integrated into the life of the university and to so many different parts of the, of the university. Um, and so we really didn't have any hurdles there. Um, and I think also the impact that, that that particular gift was going to have at that school in uh, virtually all of it went to finish late. And that was just, that was just um, really a, a special thing uh, for, for him personally, I think, but then of course for us at the, at the school. Um, yeah. Well said. Um, let's talk about UNH for a minute. And I think what stood out to me when we reconnected about a year ago, Troy, was just the, um, I, I think the word growth is just how I would summarize the conversation where you really had a focus on, on growing the team, on growing revenue, on growing donors, on growing your talent pipeline, on growing your donor pipeline. Um, and it seemed like it was really rooted in um, analysis and um, even some consulting work that was really focused on just the business of UNH. How do we drive revenue efficiently? Um, but in a way that uh, seems somewhat rare at a time when public higher education has increasingly struggled, frankly, for uh, you know funding or or has had to deal with um, you know budget cutbacks and so forth. And and so I'm I'm just curious, like maybe Debbie helping paint the picture of um, the opportunity that you walked into and, and sort of the context for the potential for growth and what the dynamic was with the board, with leadership to really take a swing in a way that I feel like very few public um, higher education institutions have been able to as it relates to professionalizing advancement. Yeah, thank you for that. Well, I feel really lucky um, that I worked with Mark Huddleston. So Mark Huddleston was the president when I was um, recruited to join and it, it, things were not going well. And he was really candid about that. In fact, he handed me a survey and said, you know, if you're going to take this job, you, you need to know what, what you're getting into. And the survey was a, a satisfaction survey and it was very clearly a dissatisfaction survey. That people, and this was staff or alumni or who, it was who, advancement who were staff. It was advancement staff, right? So um, Mark had the vision that in order for us to really build and grow, we had to combine three previously separate units at UNH. So not unusual. Alumni was separate from development at that time. And uh, so was the communications and marketing team. He brought them all together under advancement so that he could invest in a leader and he could invest in staff and resources. And he did that. And I was the beneficiary really of his vision and being able to partner with him to grow the team. And, you know, when I joined the previous five or six years, the average they raised was about 14 million in cash. They didn't really do pledges. And so as everyone said to me, this is a great opportunity. And, and I knew, I know many people who've gone to UNH. I've been around New England. I've always seen UNH and people love UNH, but it just never seemed to raise money and, and to be that shop where they could really have that sustained effort. They had certainly some, some generous donors and some great success, but it was never a sustained growth. And I was always surprised by that. So I jumped at the opportunity um, to work there. I, I knew what the love of the alumni community was for its alma mater and, and the public in general around UNH who love UNH. Um, so it really was uh, a great president who empowered us, who gave us resources. We hired a lot of people. We embarked on training. We implemented, which I'm really grateful for, incentive pay. 
and that had been a, um, a, a something I'd always wanted to do, but had never really gotten the green light. So that really changed the culture. You know, when I arrived, um, gift officers really didn't have much in a portfolio. It was very constricted. They had unrealistic visit goals with a very small portfolio. So no one was really doing visits. And, and when they were, it was quite measured and, and contained. And there was no incentive or goals around philanthropy or fundraising. So we totally changed all that. We started incentivizing people just to get out the door and meet their visit goals. And lo and behold, that first year where there was an incentive to do it, they all met their visit goals. And then we started really building the philanthropic piece. And how do we motivate people to um, achieve challenging but realistic goals? And so, you know, we did all those things. Um, We moved from about 12 to 14 million a year to high thirties a year. And then Troy came. And with Troy, uh, we really, again, took another leap, right? So there was a whole new level of professionalism. Troy is an amazing blend of a data-driven financial person who is also extremely articulate. And he can write and he can communicate. And those two skills together are really rare. And Troy has them. And with that ability to both manage the data, be very data-driven, very, very focused, and also be able to inspire and motivate and write compelling case statements. It really took us um, and has taken us to the next level. So this year we will raise more than we've ever raised in UNH's history. So 75 million, maybe more Troy, right? 75 million is just where we are now. I mean, we got 16 days to go, anything's possible, right? (laughs) Um, But it's been, you know, so to go in a decade from 12 to 14 million a year in cash to now be at 75 million, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. We, Troy and I will both tell you that we should have been at 75 million years ago. <laughs> and um, and uh, we're just, gra- we're glad we got there now, but um, you know, we really see the opportunity at UNH as, as significantly more, significantly so, more. And that's what makes it fun every day. Debbie, let me just ask you, yeah. um, I feel like there's still this debate or skepticism or outright opposition to incentive compensation in this oh, yeah. sector, Absolutely. which I find completely ridiculous because Agreed. we love incentivizing football coaches or strength coaches or basketball coaches or presidents for that matter, but it's taboo as it relates to advancement. And there are leaders that are pushing in that regard. Rod Grabowski, somebody who we've recently connected yep. with at University of Buffalo. He's done some great writing and thinking on it. Um, the folks at, uh, I mean, there, there are more and more case studies, but it still feels crazy to me that it's not just Agreed. status quo. Um, but I'm sure that you encountered some of that resistance. I'd love to just know, as you think about some of those early, like, cause you're dealing with, it sounds like some real culture issues, some, um, just standards of work that you were trying to turn around and, Compensation is a factor. We know it's not the only factor by a long shot in in building a great organization. Um, But what were some of the examples in either data or even anecdotes from your people when you were able to sort of introduce that? What was the, you know, one, how much opposition did you face, if any? And two, when did you start to feel, hey, this really can be an important lever to driving growth in philanthropy? Yeah, well, you know, I've always believed in it because I guess I've been um, far more um, 
practical when I think about what I've done. So I was a gift officer, right? I'm not asking people to do anything that I hadn't done for years. I was a gift officer. That's where I spent the bulk of my time was out doing donor visits. And I saw what motivated me, right? And I, I was motivated by wanting to be one of the most successful gift officers that was meeting goals and ex- exceeding expectations. And um, I really didn't get any opposition um, from the gift officers. You know, they, I think it was, it was twofold, Brent. It was incentivizing them to be focused, right? Because we know there's a million things that come across our plates as gift officers and we need them to be focused on who are they going to visit? Why are they visiting them? What's the plan? And then how are they moving them towards a gift? And if you're incentivizing really key things to get that in place, it's really not rocket science. I mean, again, Troy has done an amazing job in taking us to the next level, but it's pretty common sense focused. It's how do you focus it? How do you use the data to drive it there? And so it really was um, my philosophy that we are in sales. And that is, to your point, kind of a dirty word, but we do sales. And the for-profit sales um, world has had incentives forever, right? And there's so much data and great literature that shows that when you're incentivizing people to achieve, they achieve, right? So why wouldn't we want to take those best practices that have been studied, tried, true, developed in the for-profit sector and bring them, you know, to us? And so, you know, one of the reasons why Troy and I click so well is we both really embrace that philosophy. And I would say the training that Troy embarked on, first it was Plus Delta, and now we have uh, a, a trainer who came from Plus Delta, but is really our partner. That's what it's all about. It's all about those key steps that get us towards the close. And that's exactly yeah. what salespeople do. No, I think that's well said. And look, we, um, even as we think about our own goal setting at Evertrue, we tend to focus, everybody tends to focus on what people would call the lagging indicators, right? This, the, the 75 million, right? That's the lagging indicator. Or in our case, it could be customers or revenue or retention and so forth. But behind every one of those lagging indicators are a bunch of leading indicators, right? How do you get to 75 million from 14? It's about how many relationships were built and how do you build a relationship? You have meetings and how do you get meetings? You ask for meetings, you reach out to people, you call, you email, you LinkedIn, you do all of these things. And so I am sure if we were to break it down and and say, how did you really go from 14 to 75 million? You know, some of it could be staff and and growth and headcount, but it absolutely has to be, there are leading indicators that were moved. And it sounds like some of the incentives that you created were not focused on 75 million, but rather focused on let's get the conversations that lead to relationships that lead to revenue. And I'm sure if we went back and looked at the data, we would start to see those leading indicators in a way that starts to predict the revenue growth that you've, you've experienced. Absolutely. You know, visits drive, right. Visits drive revenue. When you're not doing visits and you're not connecting in a personal way with people, thank God for zoom now. Right. But thank God for zoom. Thank God for zoom. But you know, those personal connections drive revenue. You cannot, get to the place with a donor where they feel passionate and connected and willing to go where they need to go, where you want them to go without a personal relationship. And you can't do that by mail or phone. (laughs) Zoom, Zoom gets us closer, but you know, people have to get out of the office. And as we know, there's so many things that keep you in the office if you're not really focused, but you know, to your point, 
it's it's somewhat blocking and tackling, right? So before Troy came, we set up some processes just to make sure that those leading indicators were happening, right? And we, we looked at visits, we looked at proposals, how many proposals did they need to submit? What was the visit goal? What was the revenue goal? So we had all those things lined up. Troy's really taken it to the next level, mm -hmm. but it really is blocking and tackling. If you want to get to that end result, you have to put those steps in place to get you there. So Troy, I first have to ask you as a former almost priest, when we say things like, thank God for Zoom, how do you feel? Is that okay? <laughs> Absolutely. Thank God for everything. All right. All right. Uh, so would you be willing to share your perspective on some of those leading indicators and behaviors that you've seen um, continue to accelerate? And maybe we start with uh, the bottom of the pyramid and work our way up because I, what I think is really unique about this story is at least my understanding is it's not just one of, we went out and found a handful of really big gifts and juiced our top line number, but the health of the base of the pyramid is much stronger than it's been. And I think that's why I feel like the UNH story is so rare, but one that needs to be told because I think frankly, a lot of your peers have basically given up on donor count at this point. Um, and you've been able to prove that there is an opportunity to um, have a healthier uh, organization across the pyramid. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think, um, you know, what, when I arrived, um, Debbie and, and the team had built a, a, a solid base of, of annual fund. And, and now over the past five years, we've been able to continue to expand that on the staffing side, which of course has led to growth on the donor side. So I think uh, as of today, we have more donors this year than we did last year. Less of them are alums than we'd like them to be. I mean, we're aiming to get back up to 10% alumni participation by the time our campaign goes public. And that's at a time, as you know, when everyone else is sort of accepting the fact that, you know, participation rates are, are going back down. We don't accept the fact that that has to be the case. We, we think that we should challenge ourselves to find ways to better engage our, our alums and, and all of our constituencies to keep that base growing. I mean, last year we had over 20,000 donors. This year, like I said, we'll have more than that. Uh, our, our giving days that we call our 603 challenge this year had, uh, you know, uh, over 12,000 donors in five days who gave, and those are, those are real numbers, 12,000 who contributed $3 million in, in, in not, not counting any funny money or, 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 or anything pledges or anything like that. That's all cash in for UNH. Um, so we, we, I think we've, we've, um, we've realized that we have to keep that base growing, uh, because even if only 1% of them ever kind of grow, go up to the, to the major gift, um, end of the pyramid, uh, you know, we, we want that 1% to be as, as large as possible. Um, so we have invested uh, both at the transformational level of giving, really doubling down on, on eight-figure and, and aspirationally nine-figure gifts um, and, 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 and made that conversation more formal and, and, um, and more regular. But uh, that translates all the way down through from principal to major uh, down to annual giving. And, um, uh, and I think that there's, it's, it's critical that there be uh, um, you know, attention paid to all of those levels equally. Tell me about your strategies on, on the top end of the pyramid. And I know, you know, this is one of those sectors where uh, there just, there aren't too many industries when, where I could give uh, your institution $10, $10,000, $10 million, or a billion dollars. Like there just aren't a lot of verticals where when you compare it to sales, Debbie, not very many sales teams have a menu of offerings that range from uh, you know, one figure to uh, nine figures, uh, let's say. 
um, but philanthropy does. And you know, one of the areas that fascinates me is just how do you even frame when you're dealing with an ultra high net worth individual ballpark? Should I be talking five million or fifty million? How do you even start to pressure test to know? Um, and I know sometimes it's let's be really specific and let's make a clear ask. And we've done the research; we know the means are there. Um, but you, I'm sure, have had situations where you thought somebody could do more and they've oh, done yeah. less and you thought somebody could do less and they've done more. And so yeah. how do you kind of walk that that line or yeah, do you have any stories that come to mind relating to that? Yeah. And, you know, that's one of the um, basic uh, skills I think I learned early on. I probably learned it when I was a gift officer at Children's Hospital. I was afraid to ask the question, if I were to prepare a proposal for you, what range should I be thinking about? What range are you thinking about? I was afraid to ask that. And what would happen is I would have an, a high net worth individual. I would spend months chasing down information and developing things. And I would hand them a proposal and they'd say, oh, I, I intended to give $5,000. Right? I mean, what a waste of time. Oh, wonderful that they gave $5,000, but to spend months, right? Preparing and, and working with physicians and researchers, right? Ask the question. What are you mm. thinking about, right? And that gives you a sense. And so I, I will say um, by asking that question, and it's one of the principal things that we've trained on with our, with our partner, you know, we, we're business people. We, we shouldn't apologize for asking for philanthropy. It's what we do. We should never say that we're with the alumni relations team and we're coming to visit. We are talking about an investment in philanthropy. And it's a great thing to talk about, right? So the more business-like we are, and the more that we put those parameters around our conversations, the more that we're maximizing our gift officer's time. So when we have those conversations and someone indicates that they want to do, well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm thinking between a half million and a million. Great. I'm thinking between 25 and 50,000. Great. I'm going to scale my time. I'm going to make sure that I'm spending mm. the months of work where the ROI is greater, and I'm still going to pay attention and, of course, want to partner with someone who wants to give us money, but I'm going to make sure that I'm not spending inordinate amounts of time for something that's not going to be as much of a payoff. And it sounds, you know, I guess that's my sales bias coming in, but we are bottom line focused. It's what we do yeah. and it's where we've had to be. And I really think you can do what I just said and still embrace the mission of a nonprofit and know that you're helping make the nonprofit better and you're helping someone engage in something that's meaningful. That's so good. Um, can I ask how often the response would be, I'm not sure, or I don't know. No. What do you, what do you, what not very you often, okay. not very often. Mostly people have an idea. Now I will say if someone says to me, a hundred thousand to two fifty. When I come back to them with a proposal, it's starting at two fifty, and it's going up from there, right? And it's this iterative process. Or sometimes, what you know that that is a range. We say, great, that's wonderful. We really want to focus them on impact. And I think um, Josh Sims, our partner, has been really great in working with Troy and the team to really think about before the number gets too embedded in the conversation. What do we want to achieve? Because that really should be the driver, right, of what you're going to give. And I think that's a, you know, it's a skill and a nuance. And uh, I will say, you know, there've been conversations recently where we had hoped for a seven or eight figure gift and it was a six figure gift. And, and you know, you need to, of course, be grateful and continue along those conversations. 
Um, but that's that's power, right? Knowledge is yeah. power. And when you know where someone's thinking, you can really um, be more effective as your role. Troy, any experiences? And I also love, you know, we learn from our, our mistakes too. You yes. know, any circumstances where you've anchored way too high or way too low that you uh, either recall or willing to share or, you know, have learned from? Yeah, sure. And Brett, I also just want to share that, you know, on that on that front end or at the top end of the pyramid, you know, one thing for me that's been a game changer has been the fact that um, both Debbie as president of the foundation and President Dean as president of the university have, have uh, um, deliberately set aside time to focus on, on that particular topic with us in development, that it's not something that Debbie or, or Jim do as, a, uh, as an add-on. It, it's something that they see as really um, integral to their role. And so when we meet on a regular basis to talk about the top of the pyramid and we, we talk through strategy and tactics um, and, and then have a president who's willing to do upwards of 100 mm-hmm. visits plus a year, uh, and, 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 and the work that Debbie's doing there, that, that's not to be taken for granted. A lot of places just you know, wouldn't have that type of engagement with the leadership of their foundation, their university. So just wanted to call that out as I think also a, a, um, a real game changer for us. But to your point about you know, um, aiming too high or too low, um, you know, the gift I had mentioned earlier that uh, we ended up doing at Harvard School of Public Health, I think is a good example. We, we were aiming for, you know, um, 50 million. We thought a 50 million endowment would be really great to have for this center. And, and uh, um, the, uh, the donors came back and said, you know, well, why would I give you a 50 million of an endowment? I could invest the money better uh, than you could. Um, I'd rather promise, you know, 25 million in current use pledged over time. Um, and we were able to pivot. And while so the number what didn't have as much pizzazz uh, on the surface, you know, underneath it, it accomplished the same amount of 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 work. Um, so I think being able to to be nimble and 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 pivot to where the donor needs to be and where they want to be. And, and I think in our case at at UNH, many of the folks who are at a point now where they're starting to make really um, substantial investments, uh, philanthropic investments in the university, uh, you know, they weren't there five years ago or 10 years ago in the campaign. And it's, it's I, I hear from a lot of folks on the foundation board and um, others who we engage in conversation about philanthropy, that they're really inspired by so many new names and new new folks who, like, who are all of these people who are making really major gifts to the university. They're all, they're all the folks who in the last campaign, you know, were really at the annual level. So um, let's, let's circle back then to being nimble, pivoting, and thank God for Zoom. Uh, while you have a you know concentrated alumni population in the Northeast, I know there are over a thousand UNH alumni in San Francisco, LA, Seattle, places that are not particularly accessible that are now one Zoom link away with HD cameras. And you've got a president who has leaned in uh, and committed to being a real fundraising partner. Tell me about the intersection of engaging people virtually, of being able to bring in the president or the athletic director or other kind of campus celebrities into a more intimate yet highly efficient Zoom environment relative to the pre-pandemic. Can we get on the president's schedule to go visit so-and-so in New York on this day? I mean, just what what is it like as we now in mid-2022 um, have settled into to this new hybrid reality. Debbie, you want me to start off on that? And I can, you bet. You bet. You know, just to say, Brent, that I think that the um, you know when the pandemic started, we we really dug into uh, just wellness checks. You know, not really 
but calling for any other reason just to make sure people were okay. And um, and as I go back and look at our, you know, we're, we're up to about well, pretty close to 4,000 visits a year now as a team, including uh, those that we do virtually. And as I go back and look at, you know, the content of some of the, the visits from the past couple of years, and I still see that language in there, wellness check, wellness check. You know, I think it's just changed the, the nature of the relationship between a gift officer and, and, and a, a donor or prospective donor that, you know, the, the team that we've built and our, the, our ethos and culture is that you know, really care about you. And it's not just about your, your gift when, when, when it's time, we'll get there, but um, you know, it's about you and your relationship to the, to the university in your life. So, so we've used Zoom to, have a, to be able to establish uh, rapport and trust. And then, and then we travel um, you know, for, for, for deeper, more meaningful conversations um, about a particular gift or to, to make a solicitation. So um, Debbie and I, I think, have tried to, to, to you know, um, reinforce that as our sort of um, our model moving forward is that you know, early discovery and qualification conversations should really be happening in a virtual space like this. Uh, and then as we get deeper into a relationship, it sort of justifies the investment uh, of travel. Um, and, and as a result, you know, we saw, we've seen our, our visits go from, you know, a couple thousand a year up to now, like I said, 4,000 a year, which I think really sets us up then for more results uh, down the line. What about donor behavior? And maybe this would even be in the last couple of months where there was a period in the pandemic when there was just no other option. We now have an option. And I'm curious, do you have donors who are like, look, you don't need to come see me. Like I'm good. I want to support you. Don't waste your time and resources coming out here as donors have gotten way more comfortable managing their business, their personal finances with all of their advisors, supporters, lawyers, agents, you name it remotely. Do you feel like that is spilling over into philanthropy or is it different? Yeah. So, so I'll jump in and Troy, you, you fill in the details. You know, I would say absolutely. Right. So we would get that anyway. We would get the, oh, don't, don't come all the way to California to see me. And then your only option was to try to catch him on phone and maybe the connection wasn't good. And now we can zoom with people. And when there was that hesitancy, like, ah, I'm not sure I want to meet a stranger from UNH in my home or out to dinner. Now that barrier of of sort of the awkwardness or or the the concern about just meeting with someone you've never met before, we can zoom, and so that's really why you know Troy talks about the the power of going from I think twelve or thirteen hundred visits a year to four thousand because it's just such a comfortable medium for people, and it opens up so much more, and we can do those discovery visits, and frankly, it's a great way to have balance for gift officers, right? So to Troy's message. We want people to have balance when they come work at UNH. We can't pay the top dollar. We know they can commute into Boston and make a heck of a lot more, more money than we can pay them. But we want to offer quality of life. And Zoom, I believe, is giving gift officers much more quality of life. You don't have to jump on a plane every time you want to connect with someone. You can use this medium. Um, and it also saves the institutions money. So I, I think it's a win-win. And I give who huge kudos to Troy and his team for really embracing the technology and thinking about how to use it yeah. effectively. I was catching up with Megan Mori from Williams College and she was saying also just the sheer environmental cost as well, you know, as more institutions are, are having um, serious dialogue around um, just sustainability, yeah. right? I mean, think about the, yeah. the carbon footprint of yeah. this experience relative to 
can I come see in San Francisco? So there's, there's not, I mean, I guess, what are the, what are the negatives though? I mean, I think we're all kind of on the forward facing, you know, this is the future side of things, but are there drawbacks at this point? Or do you just feel like um, this is one of those kind of step function changes where, you know, we didn't have email, then we had it, right? We didn't have high speed internet, then we had it, you know, we didn't have zoom and now we have it. Or I guess in this case, it existed, but it just wasn't adopted, right? right? You didn't have planned giving prospects who would say, yeah, sure, I'll jump on a Zoom. Now you do. We're not ever going to go back. But I do think there's a bit of a tension in the sector right now of, whew, finally, I can get back to my 100 visits a year. I can get out there. I, I love traveling. I miss the hotels. I love going to New York a couple <laughs> times a year. That's not for everybody, but there are some people yeah, 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 you're right. who really get energized by that. Yeah. Um, do we need to go back there? Well, I, I would think, I, I think so the, from, from two sides. So one is the side of the donor or the prospective donor. I mean, I think I, uh, Debbie and I often hear alums will say, you know, UNH is my happy place. You know, when I come back, to campus, or when you come visit with me in person, it's like you're bringing um, really, really good stuff my way. And so I, I've heard that over and over from 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 our our team and and uh, all over the country when they travel. That's it's like they're bringing UNH out there. So it, it creates uh, a much more just a deeper experience. I think I think of Zoom as more of the transactional types of conversations, a quick hop, and but they're not going to they're not the the deeper more meaningful conversations that are going to really move the relationship. So we, we've tried, I think, um, uh, kind of keeping that in, the, in that direction. The other thing for us, you know, we're, we're UNH, we, we don't have an abundance of resources. So, you know, our, we, we don't travel, um, you know, first class we're, 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 you know, it's, it's, you're, you're getting the cheap seats and you're staying in the, in the inexpensive hotels. It's not, it's not a really luxury type of experience to be, a gift officer out, out on the road. And right now travel is a nightmare. I mean, you know, you, totally. Right. So who wants to travel? Totally. So I, I, I have found that, you know, uh, in, in with our team now, when they travel, you know, it's, it's almost, it is kind of a sacrifice for them to have to do it. I mean, we're our, our group in development, we're um, um, a hybrid, you know, group where, where the majority of our work is done remotely. We can come to campus. We have wonderful facilities on campus that we can use um, to be here, but we're working from wherever we are in the world and um, to have to then, you know, go through all the, the rigmarole of travel is, is really, is really stressful and, and not as productive. I will say that as our alumni relations team gets back up to speed with its events that are back out on the road in development, we've really tried to partner with them and, and leverage those events um, uh, for, for gift officers to be able to, to tag along, to bring folks to those events and then have visits but also with Debbie and, and President Dean uh, as well, when when they're at those events, and we can we can then reach out to um, folks that we want them to have some time with in person. I mean that that just that's so much uh, more meaningful, I think, than a Zoom could ever be. Well said. Uh, when you don't have a lot of donors and dollars, um, you don't need as much stewardship, and success creates new challenges and opportunities. And as you think about really, uh, whether it's your 603 day, the broad-based growth, you know, what we preach at Evertrue is that um, whether it's digital interaction or a first donation, that is a signal of engagement that ideally leads to rapid qualification, which leads to rapid assignment, which leads to rapid stewardship and follow-up, and that we can really shorten the cycle 
um, by elevating that sort of intersection of stewardship and discovery. Um, but that's a lot of names to work through. I know you've been um, data-driven in your approach, Troy, but just how do you think about building a stewardship apparatus or the mid-level apparatus that can now really make sense of those 20,000 donors in a maybe more personalized way than you would have in the past? And I, I think, you know, when we um, were able to bring on Evertrue last year and offer that as a really powerful tool for our gift officers to have in their tool chest, you know, we have a, a, a small but mighty uh, research team that does a, a fantastic job, uh, but, but, but there's not many of them. And so our gift officers, you know, can leverage a tool like Evertrue to have that real-time intel about who's coming in to the pipeline. You know, I think about a third of all the donors who made a gift during our giving day, during our 603 challenge, about a third of the, those 12,000 were first-time donors. And so who it's are amazing. they, where are they coming from and, and what's their story? And, and so having uh, a tool like Avertrue to be able to really dig into that and, and make sense of it uh, and, and prioritize outreach has been a game changer for us. And, and I think it will, it will continue to um, throughout, the, throughout the campaign. But um, uh, yeah, that's where I see that, that being really valuable. Well, I think it's, the, it's really all of those 20,000 people or the, the third of them that are new donors, you know, they all have a Debbie story or a Troy story, like what inspired them to give. They very easily could have gotten the appeal and said, you know what? Nope. But they said yes, even if in a small capacity, because they believe in public higher education. Is it because their lives were changed? Is it because their uh, you know, family has been positively impacted? And it's just, um, I, I do feel like we're on the cusp of really being able to get at way more of those stories. And part of it is by going from a thousand to 4,000 visits. Um, but then how do we go from 4,000 to 40,000 more personalized experiences, even if it's not a visit per se. Um, and, and it's kind of that, it used to be very binary. You were either in a portfolio and somebody was coming to visit you or you were in like the call center pool. And it was like very much either or. And I think we have this opportunity and obviously we're trying to weave in thank you in more creative ways to just get that personal story, which could be literally a one-on-one -on -one from a student that's a beneficiary to a donor, or it could be more generic, you know, you help students like me, um, but just having that kind of sliding scale of personalization uh, is something that, that we're going to continue to push really, really hard on and just appreciate um, the partnership and your willingness to innovate. And Troy, we've had the opportunity to connect over the year. Debbie, I love meeting you. And it's exactly why we started the podcast because um, just hearing, you know, your perspective on creative incentives and, you know, compensation and fundraising is sales. And we have other guests who will say it's absolutely not sales. And it's just <laughs> great to hear those um, various viewpoints as we all kind of work in pursuit of the greater good. Now, I know, according to Troy's uh, LinkedIn, that you are hiring, but this is usually when I say, are you hiring? Uh, and if folks who are listening want that quality of life, who believe in public higher education, who like what they've heard today, what is the best way for them to get in touch? Hey, I, I would say, Brent, reach out to me directly. I, I've, had, I've had so many informational conversations with folks and over the past few years, I mean, this past year, Debbie and I have hired uh, about 15 uh, gift officers onto our team and um, and we're going to continue to to build out uh, uh, with the resources that the university is giving us, 
Um, but, you know, I think we really do have a special group of, of folks that, that we've assembled here, uh, a great culture. And uh, as Debbie said, we might not be able to afford to, to pay the top dollar, but we, we do try to uh, really ensure um, the, uh, the best possible quality of life and the most meaningful experience for the work. So I'd say reach out to me. Um, we've always, we always seem to have some positions open and, and going and, and Debbie and I are always having proactive conversations with, with candidates because you never know uh, what the landscape will look like down the road. So. Yeah. Alternatively, you could just buy a house in Durham and then reach out. That would be another strategy. Uh, okay. Last question. Then we'll wrap. Troy, what was your favorite stop on the RV experience with your aunt? Oh, favorite stop. So the first one that came to mind when you just asked that question was, was Hershey Park. Hershey. I don't know. That just popped into my head when you just asked that question, but why not? um, I don't know. That was a, that was a really good. That's, that's all I wanted. I I've gotten that question a lot lately. I rarely get to ask it. So thank you. And Debbie, last question. What is the number one hike? in New England that we should do that we probably haven't? Oh, geez. Oh, I don't know. I, I mean, I think Mount Monadnock is one of the best. Probably many people have done it, but it is one of my favorite hikes. It's a great workout if you take the right route, and it's an amazing view from the top. Love it. Great points to end on. Thank you both for your time. Keep up the amazing work. Keep focused on growth, and uh, thank you for sharing your stories. With thank that, you, I'm going to wrap Today's episode, Brent coming in live with Troy Finn and Debbie Dutton from the University of New Hampshire. Thanks and take care.